welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. In our last episode, we told you about the mania that ensued after the steamships Excelsior and Portland arrived in the lower 48 from the north and disgorged dozens of prospectors staggering with the gold they'd brought back from the Klondike. In this episode, we'll tell you the story of one person who got caught up in that mania, Tappan Adney. We've mentioned him before, since he was a journalist for Harper's Weekly in New York and documented his adventure as he went along. He eventually published an absolutely ripping account of his adventure called simply The Klondike Stampede. There's a link to it on our website, klondikegoldrush.org. Adney's experience is typical in many ways. He left a nice office job to head to the Klondike without really knowing much about it. On the other hand, he was being paid by Harper's and had his expenses covered, which meant he had a bit more money than a lot of the Stampeders. This allowed him to buy better equipment, hire packers, and so on, something that the more cash-strapped gold seekers were not able to do. However, he also had to carry camera equipment, much heavier in those days, and stay up writing down the day's notes when everyone else was fast asleep from exhaustion. He had also, unusually, spent almost two years of his youth with friends of the family in New Brunswick, where he became close with a master First Nations canoe builder and built a number of boats. This backwoods experience would come in very handy once he got to the Yukon. In fact, later in life, he ended up living in Montreal and helping the McGill and McCord museums on Indigenous and canoe topics. Adney says that at first, the more conservative newspapers treated the news from the Klondike as sensationalism. Harper's wasn't even planning to send a correspondent. And there were plenty of reasons not to. Despite the heroic boosterism of newspaper editor Erastus Brainerd, who we told you about last week, and people like him, governments and the press were putting out lots of warnings. William Ogilvie had sent word to the Canadian government in Ottawa in an official report in June, even before the Excelsior arrived in San Francisco. Ottawa made arrangements to update the mining laws and send more surveyors, customs officers, and, critically, members of the military and the Northwest Mounted Police. The Canadian government put out a warning that all who were going faced starvation over the winter and food could not be supplied to those going in unprepared. The colonial office in London advised British subjects to wait until the spring. Nor were the U.S. newspapers empty of warnings. Here are a few examples. Some were as unhinged from the truth as articles from the biggest boosters, just in the other direction. Quote, There are but few sane men who would deliberately set out to make an Arctic trip in the fall of the year, yet this is exactly what those who now start for the Klondike are doing. Here's another, quote, Winter will soon set in there. Suffering seems inevitable. How about, quote, What gold seekers must endure. Their chief food in winter is bear fat, and a bath or change of clothing is death. And my personal favorite, which was told to a newspaper by an alleged veteran Yukon miner, quote, the richest section is yet undeveloped. It is 100 miles from Klondike and is known as the Black Hole of Calcutta. It is inhabited by ex-convicts of Bohemia, and murders and riots take the place of law and order. Nonetheless, on July 28, 1897, just less than two weeks after the Excelsior made the news, Harper's decided to send a correspondent after all. They selected Adney. Adney started gathering his outfit, including his camera gear, and on July 30th, walked into the Canadian Pacific Railway's New York office and bought a through ticket from New York to Dai, including passage on the steamer SS Islander from Victoria, B.C. to Dai. His ship was set to sail on August 15th, 
so he had two weeks to get across the continent and complete his outfit. From faraway New York, based on the not-very-reliable reports in the newspapers, he chose the Chilkoot Pass route, along the old Klingit trading route from Dai to the headwaters of the Yukon River. All over the world, people were making similar decisions with similar information. There were a variety of routes to the Klondike, the Chilkoot Pass, the White Pass, up the Yukon River from St. Michael on the coast of Alaska in the Bering Strait, and various overland, all-Canadian routes from places like Ashcroft in British Columbia and Edmonton in Alberta. We'll tell you about all these in a later episode. Some even make the Chilkoot Trail look like a walk in the park. But for today, we'll follow Adney's story. By the time his train left New York, Adney had heard of the White Pass route from Skagway. It started just a few miles from Dai where his ship was headed, and, he was told, already had a trail constructed and was being used by parties with pack horses. Accordingly, when he finished the first leg of his train journey from New York to Montreal, he sent a telegram ahead to Victoria, booking space on the SS Islander for six horses. When he got to Winnipeg, he went to the Hudson's Bay Company store for furs and winter clothing. However, he writes that, quote, the town was already cleaned out, not a fur robe nor skin coat to be had. Instead, and fearing that nothing of the kind suitable for the Arctic climate would by this time be left on the coast, I got a regulation capote of the employees of the company made of the heaviest black duffel, reaching to the knees and with a hood, unquote. He also bought some heavy blankets, a voyageur sash, a Canadian knit toque, and the best moosehide moccasins he could find. The rest he decided to get in Victoria, which he reached on August 8th. As Adney got closer to the Klondike, the excitement rose. In New York, you could just walk into the Canadian Pacific office and buy a ticket. In Winnipeg, they were already sold out of winter items. In Victoria, the streets were buzzing with men, and they were mostly men. Buying horses, winter coats, boots, thick socks, mitts, flour, tea, coffee, bacon, rope, and more. On the street, you could walk past men demonstrating how to pack a horse and tie the diamond hitch to rookies. The word Klondike is everywhere, Adney says, and in a huge range of accents. Scottish, Irish, French, German, American, Chinese, and more. Adney says the, quote, bigness of the undertaking, unquote, began to sink in. A dozen people had come up to him and shaken his hand, wishing him luck and exclaiming what a big challenge he was going on. Victoria and Vancouver merchants had quickly realized that the Klondike was in Canada after all, and that outfits purchased in Canada would not have to pay custom duties entering the Yukon. They used this to counteract the aggressive marketing of Seattle. As more news of spectacular gold finds circulated, more people arrived in Victoria, and more merchants jumped into the outfitting business. Adney now had to buy everything he would need for 10 to 12 months, in a place whose conditions he didn't know. Quality advice was critical, yet how could you tell which of the many circulating stories was true? One man tells Adney he doesn't plan to buy any horses. He will figure out how to get over the passes when he gets to Dai. Then a letter arrives from Dai to an outfitter. Quote, For heaven's sake, if you have any influence to prevent it, do not let anyone come here without horses. Hundreds of people will be encamped here all winter, unable to get across. Unquote. Then Adney hears that another man intends to take 32 pairs of moccasins, plus two Irish setters and a lawn tennis set. Yet another led an enormous ox through the streets of Victoria with a pack saddle on it. When it was done carrying his gear, he intended to eat it. Adney decides not to buy one of the many foldable boats available, and instead, as a former canoe builder, makes his own boat design and orders the lumber needed. He describes it as, quote, a lumberman's bateau, 
23 feet long, 5 feet beam, 18 inches width on the bottom, 5.5 feet overhanging in front, and 4 feet in the stern, the bottom being of 3 quarter inch cedar, the sides of 5 eighths and half inch stuff, unquote. He calculates that one ton of goods will make his boat sit one foot lower in the water. Wild stories circulate about how it is impossible to carry lumber over the passes and that hundreds of boats are being abandoned. On the other hand, to get there with no boat makes no sense either. The situation for horses is particularly wild. The latest rumor says that 3,000 people are stuck on the Chilkoot Pass due to lack of packers and that new arrivals are going by horse over the White Pass. Adney says that, quote, the horses, alleged to be pack horses, that are being brought into Victoria for sale amuse everyone greatly. There are ambulating boneyards, the infirm and the decrepit, those afflicted with spavin and spring halt, and many with ribs like the sides of a whiskey cask and hips to hang hats on, unquote. Many horses are in terrible shape, yet they're being sold and bought for one of the hardest trails in the world. Horses that would hardly have fetched $5 a month ago are now worth 25 or more. The pack trains look ridiculous as a result. Adney buys six horses of various sizes and conditions. Not having much horse experience himself, he decides to partner with two men he'd sized up on the train. One was a baker, but the other was a former U.S. Army cavalry trooper who knew horses, even if he wasn't an expert packer. The deal was that the two partners would take charge of Adney's horses and get his outfit over the pass. He would have time to write. And once at Bennett Lake, Adney would build his boat while his partners took the horses back and brought over their own outfits. For food, he loads up on pork, flour, beans, and tea, figuring that lumber camps in the U.S. Army must know something about the diet and outdoorsman needs. For clothing, he adds rubber hip boots and an oilskin coat. Everyone says a deerskin parka with a hood is best for winter, plus a good fur robe. Seven feet by eight feet is recommended, and Arctic hair is the best fur for this. Lynx, fox, wolf, and marmot are also good, but bear is too heavy. Adney is pleased to get an 8-foot by 5-foot marmot robe lined with a blanket from a merchant in Victoria, but originally sewn by a First Nations artisan up the coast. He also buys three bales of hay and a 1,000 pounds of oats for the horses. If you're packing for a trip of your own, we've put Adney's shopping list on the episode webpage. Everything from 150 pounds of bacon to 10 pounds of pitch for his boat to one gold pan. Dogs are much sought after, but impossible to buy. Undoubtedly, this is the inspiration for the dog napping of Buck in Jack London's Call of the Wild. But Adney sees some magnificent St. Bernard's headed north. You can buy Yukon sleds, huskier than he'd seen used in the forests of New Brunswick. They're 7 feet long, 16 inches wide, with a height of 6 inches. The runners are ash, with 2-inch steel shoes. An old ship originally built for carrying coal is hastily refurbished with stalls for horses and bunk beds for people. Two of Adney's horses go aboard, and one of his partners. Finally, Adney, the rest of his horses, and his other partner board the SS Islander. A huge crowd gathers around the dock, and they steam away as three cheers for the Klondike fades into the background. Then it's time to find your horses in the hold, try to find where your boxes and hay have been stowed, and start thinking about what's waiting for you in Dai. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, 
it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back.